You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to 2 for T. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and my guest this week is Dinyar Patel. Dinyar is Assistant Professor of History at the S.P. Jain Institute of Management and Research in Bombay. His research work is centered on the topics of Indian nationalism, the city of Bombay, um, and uh, the Zoroastrian Parsi community. Um, and he's written for a number of journals, but I believe this is your first book. It's called Nauroji, Pioneer of Indian Nationalism. And yeah. I was absolutely thrilled to receive it because it's a a lovely big substantial tome and um the the um blur the the blurbs of praise on the back are like a who's who of Indian intellectual luminaries. Oh thank you. And uh so all my favorite Indian historians loved this book and having read it I can see why. It's an extremely detailed, very scholarly work, but um very readable, um really imaginative and empathetic and fantastic, completely fascinating deep dive into that period of history. Um and uh into a figure who has been uh unjustly forgotten. And even I didn't well not even I, but I also I did I didn't know much about him except that I knew he was the first uh Indian to become an MP in the UK House of Commons. And um I was also interested in I was also struck by that because he was a Parsi. So mm-hmm. I was like go team. And I used to pass his statue regularly when I lived in um, Bombay. Um, but I never bothered to find out anything more about him. And um, I had, shamefully, I had no idea that he played such an important role in early Indian nationalism. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, from your book, uh, just to give a kind of Introduction, and this is actually from the end, so it's a little bit of a summary of why Nairoji was important. In the century that has passed, um, since Narayan Chandavarkar uttered those words, Narayan, sorry, um, the name of Dadabai Nairoji has pronouncedly dimmed in public consciousness, overshadowed by the legacies of those nationalist leaders who finally delivered on the promise of Swaraj for India. The struggle for freedom evolved in dramatic ways in the years immediately after Nauroji's death. It acquired new methods, millions of new recruits, and a dizzying assortment of new political and social objectives. Who among the Congress leaders gathered outside the Towers of Silence in 1917 could have anticipated the events of the next four years? The Rollat Acts, which considerably enhanced the coercive powers of the colonial administration, proved that, in spite of promises of Indian political reform that were finally emanating from Westminster, the Raj would cling to its worst authoritarian impulses. General Reginald Dyer, by brutally killing hundreds of peaceful protesters in Amritsar in April 1919, inflicted a fatal blow to any lingering faith in British justice and fair play. And Mohandas K. Gandhi, by launching the non-cooperation movement in 1920, charted a new course in anti-colonial resistance. He hammered the final nail into the coffin of a nationalist politics defined by strictly constitutional agitation, petitioning and forbearance. In this context, many of Nairoji's political conceptions and methods appeared hopelessly out of date. 
What was the use of clamouring for civil service reform when the new watchword was non-cooperation? How could any number of Indian MPs play a constructive role in distant Westminster? The Grand Old Man, Nairoji was known as the Grand Old Man of India, and his politics retreated into relatively distant memory. In spite of this, Nairoji's legacy remains far-reaching and pervasive, albeit in a quiet and unobtrusive way. His bedrock political and economic ideas and his towering example as an anti-imperialist pioneer are the twin components of his legacy. It is a legacy that extends far beyond the subcontinent. In the United Kingdom, a new generation of non-white political leaders has re-examined his landmark election to Parliament, hailing the central Finsbury MP as a pioneer of the British-Asian community. Meanwhile, as British society fitfully confronts its imperialist past, Nairoji remains as relevant as ever. His documentation of Indian poverty still serves as a powerful counteractive to chronic outbreaks of imperial nostalgia. Across the world during the 20th century, Nairoji's economic writings provided ammunition to anti-colonial liberation movements. His drain theory, which we'll talk about in a moment, found echoes in the thought of diverse leaders such as Kwame Nkrumah, I can't pronounce that name, who led uh, Ghana to independence in 1957, Sukarno, the first president of Indonesia, and Eric Williams, a noted scholar and prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago. Williams's landmark 1944 book, Capitalism and Slavery, complemented Nairoji's work by sketching out a similar economic drain in the British West Indies one where the blood of African slaves cemented the fortunes of Liverpool and London. Naturally, it is in India where Nairoji's legacy has been the most pervasive. It is simply impossible to imagine how the nationalist movement would have developed without him. More than any other early nationalist figure, Nairoji established its key institutions, mentored its leaders, chalked out its initial goals and strategies, and elucidated foundational economic grievances. While nurturing the Indian polity, he gave it strong international roots, enmeshing Indian nationalism within a much broader anti-imperialist stream. In moments of despair, such as during the long night of conservative rule in the late 1890s and early 1900s, he preached faith and perseverance. He simply refused to give up, no matter the odds. Of equal importance, Dadabai Nairoji demonstrated to subject peoples that they could stand up to their colonial masters. They could speak truth to power, shredding racist arguments, disproving official economic statistics, and condemning colonial policies from the very floor of the House of Commons. These were not just courageous acts, they were subversive ones as well. True, Nairoji regularly declared his loyalty to British rule and his faith in the British people. More often than not, however, he used such declarations as a shield from behind which he could launch even more devastating assaults against the Raj. Nairoji shook up the smug confidence that buttressed the British Empire. He utterly demolished the idea that imperialism was beneficial to the colonised, laying bare its real consequences while putting colonial officials on the defensive. With every angry denunciation that he elicited from an Anglo-Indian organ or an official in Calcutta or Whitehall, and with every ordinary Briton whom he won over to the cause of Indian reform, Nairoji exposed fractures in the edifice of empire, fractures that future nationalists would exploit and widen. So let's um, let's start by um, talking a little bit about why Nairoji is relatively little known compared with mm-hmm. other pioneers of Indian independence? So I, I think there are a few reasons for this. I mean, first of all, um, Nauroji came well before, you know, the generation that ultimately gave India independence, the Nehru, Gandhi, Patel, and, and others. Uh, so by that era, obviously, politics were very different. Uh, Nauroji's style of politics and his, his uh, you know, the political world that he lived in was already so dramatically different uh, from what uh, Indians were experiencing in, say, the 1920s and 1930s. I mean, it, it's it's amazing just how rapidly change occurs uh, politically uh, in India uh, through the first few decades of the 20th century. I mean, you know, what what it, uh, what was the political norm in, say, 1914 is, is just completely 
uh, washed away um, by, say, 1918, 1919, once Gandhi comes to the fore of the Congress. Uh, so, so that's one reason. I mean, he was, you know, his legacy was obviously, uh, you know, shadowed by by those who actually delivered on independence and, uh, you know, who who developed different methods and and and, and policies uh, for, you know, getting. Uh, independence from from the British Empire. There, there were other reasons as well. I mean, Naroji was a Parsi, and as a minority, uh, you know, today in, in India, uh, you know, history is is an extremely political um, creature. Uh, so, you know, if, if there isn't a large vote bank or a large constituency associated with a particular individual, uh, that person's fortunes, uh, in terms of historical memory, uh, you know, fall or decline. Uh, and you know, considering that the Parsis are so tiny, there's there's not much of a you know political impetus really to remember a figure um, uh, like Naroji. Um, what I find more unusual, I think, is is how Naroji is is less remembered in a place like Great Britain. I mean, as as Britain becomes uh, more diverse, as as more Asians um, enter politics, uh, you know, Naroji's legacy is is really uh, kind kind of crucial uh, to understanding. Um, you know, how, uh, you know, non-whites enter into the political uh, forum uh, in, you know, what, what was the center of empire and how they, how they relate to that, that, that former imperial heritage. It's starting to change. I mean, you, one starts to, to note some interest in people like Naroji or the other early Asian MPs like uh, Sakratwala or Bhavnagri. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's a lot more that's, that needs to be explored. Uh, and it could be really beneficial in, in order to understand uh, Asian history in Britain. Yes, absolutely. It's that that is surprising. I'd never thought of that. And a straw poll of my housemates, none of them have heard of him. Um, yeah. um, and I don't think that I have heard him talked about in um, in a British Asian context at all. Let's. So his life really had. Uh, you talk about his life as falling basically into three parts. There right. was first theory. Um, then legislation, um, attempts to influence legislation, and then agitation. Um, so there was a, a shift from kind of intellectual exploration to um, more radicalization as his life continued. Um, let's look at those, perhaps those those three parts of his life in turn. And let's begin with the theory. So um, one of his most important contributions was um, a thing called economic drain theory, or just drain theory. Um, right. uh, could you talk about that a bit? Sure, sure. So, um, Dadabai Naroji came of age uh, in you know the the middle of the of the the eighteen hundreds, the nineteenth century. Um, and during this era, I mean, if you were in India or in Great Britain or indeed pretty much anywhere else in the world, uh, the dominant idea, the dominant narrative about colonialism was that it was it was good. For subject peoples, right? I mean, certain countries were "quote unquote" more civilized. Um, they brought modern trade, um, aspects of modern technology, culture uh, to parts of the world that were "quote unquote" less civilized. And India was was supposedly one of those. So, so um, the British uh, colonial mission, and it was deliberately styled that way in India, uh, was meant to be one of upliftment and creating prosperity, and, and that was the narrative by which uh, the Raj was was justified. Um, and Naruji was one of the first people to really seriously set this back, uh, set back this argument and pick it apart. And he, he was he was pretty much the first colonial uh, individual uh, to publicly do so um, and, 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 you know, take apart these arguments and show how completely wrongheaded they were. Uh, so the drain of wealth refers to the idea that, you know, far from enriching India, British rule was actually impoverishing it uh, and causing... Uh, you know, mass famines uh, that devastated India throughout uh, the, the, the second half of the 19th century. Millions of people died in these famines. Uh, and the idea was essentially this, um, that, you know, Britain, you know, out of all the taxes that it collected in, in, uh, in India, uh, a certain portion of those taxes were, were physically taken out of the Indian economy uh, and sent back to Great Britain uh, through, through various means. I mean, through remission, uh, remittances, uh, you know, through paying the salaries of Indian civil servants, uh, through funding military expeditions. Um, and by the 1860s and 1870s, Naroji calculated that roughly one-fourth of Indian revenue was being taken out of the country every year. Uh, so this drain was quite large. I mean, every year, one-fourth of all revenue collected was was uh, taken out 
of the country, not cycled back uh, through the national economy and, and taken to another country, which, which became richer consequently. Um, and this was an idea that was not new uh, in the sense that many Indians had talked about something like a drain uh, for decades beforehand. Uh, but the power of this idea that Naruji expressed uh, was, was backed by uh, the reason why it was so powerful was because it was backed by such detailed scholarship, by, by numbers, by data, uh, by picking apart official um, you know, economic prognoses and showing uh, how they were wrong uh, and matching it with the situation on the ground. I mean, you know, as Naroji was talking about this terrible cycle of poverty that uh, Britain was inflicting on India, uh, there were devastating famines in places like Orissa or Madras or uh, the, the northern parts of India, which, which again, you know, killed millions of people and demonstrated uh, how most people were literally living on the verge of starvation. And, you know, if something like you know, a failed monsoon or a natural disaster occurred, uh, start, you know that 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 uh, you know living on the edge uh, trans you know turned into dying uh, from starvation. Uh, so it it was you know it was, a, it was a radically different take on what colonialism did for India, and not surprisingly, uh, he got a, a lot of flack for that, a lot of condemnation. Some people went so far as to uh, you know suggest that he should be tried for sedition uh, for suggesting that British rule was was you know anything but good and, and beneficial for uh, for for um, colonized people. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the, uh, um, going to, into a little bit of the detail of that, um, uh, one of the things that he felt would help change that was, um, Indianizing the Indian civil service. And, right. um, he spent a lot of time, um, campaigning for what might seem, what might seem like a, a fairly, abstruse side issue, which is um, simultaneous examinations. So at that time, examinations for the Indian civil service were all held in the UK. And um, now Roji uh, campaigned to have examinations held concurrently in the UK and in India. Why was that so important? Why was that such a, a central issue for him? Right. So in, you know, the study of Indian history, this this particular movement, you know, what you what you talked about, simultaneous civil service examinations uh, is is thought to be, you know, a good example of why early Indian nationalism failed, uh, why it, it, you know, it did not uh, excite, uh, you know, the mass of people in, in India. It, it, you know, it did not succeed politically. Uh, and I take a rather different view on this issue. Uh, now, you know, you, you mentioned this, uh, you know, in, in, in order to join the Indian civil service, in order to join the government, you had to take an exam. Um, now, that exam, uh, what, you know, it was a competitive exam, was only held in Great Britain, uh, which meant that even though um, officially anyone could take that exam, you know, if you were an Indian or a Briton, uh, practically, if you were an Indian, you were barred from it. Why? Uh, first of all, you had to sail halfway across the world. Uh, to do so, there were specific age limits placed on Indian candidates. It was extremely expensive to do, uh, you know, tuitions and tutorials to study for this, this exam. Uh, so throughout Naroji's life, you see, you know, him, um, you know, kind of exploring the difference between what expressions were of equality or, uh, you know, egalitarianism within the British Empire and what the actual reality was on the ground. Uh, and this was one of the first examples where he did it, because he, he showed that, you know, even though technically all Indians could, you know, take an exam and join the civil service, practically it was barred to them. Uh, and what that meant was that pretty much all the people who worked in the government of India were not Indians. Uh, they were Britons. Uh, and consequently, all the money that was paid to, you know, for their salaries went to Britons, and that money was eventually taken out of the country and formed part of, of the drain of wealth. But as importantly, um, the perspectives of the government, the policies of the government were, dicta uh, were dictated by British concerns because it was, it, you know, only Britons were at the helm of power. Um, and by having simultaneous examinations in India, so, you know, by having exams for the civil service held both in London as well as, say, Bombay, Calcutta, Madras, what, what have you, uh, you could allow more Indians uh, a fair shot of entering the civil service. And therefore, by having more Indians in the civil service, uh, by Indianizing it, uh, you could consequently get uh, Indian perspectives uh, in the government. Uh, you could approach something like, you know, eventually self-government once enough Indians were uh, in power, uh, since they would be calling the shots rather than, um, you know, people who came from, you know, England or Scotland or Ireland for a few years and then retired back to their home country. Yes, exactly. I mean, most uh, most people in the Indian civil service 
um, it's it's not about uh, people. It's it's not in a sense um, parallel to people emigrating to a country. Uh, they went there for a few years, drew their salary, and then went home. Right, um, right. It was it was kind of you know the the an, an early experiment in expat lifestyle, if you will. Yes, yes, and also um, it took uh, at least two weeks to get from Bombay to London at that time. It was a really expensive sea voyage. If um, if you were lucky, yeah. I mean, during Naroji's first voyage, uh, his ship actually nearly drowned <laughs> because of uh, <laughs> a storm. So so yeah, it it took a long time. It was it was difficult. If there were you know cholera quarantines along the way, you could be held up for weeks and weeks. So mm. it was not an easy trip. Yeah, yeah. So um, why did um, uh, give give my uh, listeners the background of of why Naroji decided to. Uh, become an MP, um, and why that was so important to the cause of Indian independence. It seems quite, I mean, it, it really speaks to the extent to which India was governed from the UK, that becoming an a, an MP, having a single MP in the House of Parliament, Houses of Parliament, became a huge um, national issue um, mm-hmm. during Naroji's campaign. On the surface, it, it seems a little absurd. I mean, why would an Indian in the 1880s or 1890s want to enter uh, the parliament of what was technically another country? Uh, but the logic was this, um, and th- this was the logic that propelled the, the early nationalist movement in India and the Indian National Congress, the, the, the primary party that was coordinating nationalist activity. Um, if you wanted to achieve reform in India uh, through the government of India, which was again dominated by the British, that was next to impossible. Uh, because the British government was extremely conservative in India. Uh, it was far from, you know, anything like a democratic organ, right? I mean, it was it was extremely authoritarian. Your chances of success were, were next to nil. Um, and furthermore, you know, legislation for things like sedition uh, could jeopardize any attempt that you made towards criticizing the government. Now, if you went to Great Britain, uh, you had several advantages. Uh, first of all, you know, if, if, if you wanted to speak more freely, you could. Uh, you know, laws for sedition and such were not as strong. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, if you wanted to run for parliament, uh, that was a great thing because within parliament, you actually had power over the British Indian government uh, on the subcontinent. Uh, so parliament ultimately could decide on reform. Uh, it could decide on, you know, what pace of constitutional change to make in India. Uh, so logically, it made a lot of sense to the first generation of Indian nationalists to go to kind of, you know, the head of the, the, the fount of power, if you will. Um, and, uh, and, you know, get change done there. Uh, now, it would, you know, people still recognize that this would be an extremely difficult task because, you know, you're one of, you know, 400 or 500 people in parliament. What real change could you do? Um, but, you know, it was in many ways the weapon of the week. It was the least, you know, it was the, the least difficult thing to do in many ways. Uh, you could at least, you know, kind of, uh, you know, create a, you know, wedge open the door a little bit for the change. Um, you could, uh, you know, get allies amongst uh, progressive figures in Great Britain. And there, there were many people who did sympathize with India's political demands at the time, who were uh, both inside and outside of parliament and, and even members of, of both parties, uh, both uh, liberals and conservatives, uh, you know, uh, I, and the Irish, of course, were, you know, were very supportive as well. Uh, so, you know, there were many opportunities in spite of the great hurdles of, you know, uh, going to you know, a foreign country in order to campaign for one's own rights and, and, and freedoms. Yeah, one thing that I realized um, when I was was reading your book was that in um, in many ways there was um, more sympathy for Indian nationalism um, in the UK than there was within within the Anglo Indian community. Um, right. Because the, the the Indian civil servants service was an extremely conservative body, um, the Anglo Indian community was extremely conservative. Not to say, I mean, well, actually, explicitly racist in many mm-hmm. cases. Um, whereas within the UK, um, the and and of course it was in their interest to to keep Britain in the hands to keep India in the hands of Great Britain. Um, whereas within the UK. There were um, there were a number of emancipatory movements at that time, and 
there was therefore, therefore it was very easy or relatively easy to connect in people's minds the different struggles, uh, struggles for greater representation, emancipation of the working class, um, the suffragism movement, as you pointed out, that Nairobi made common cause with a number of women's rights activists, and also the um, Irish Home Rule, the movement for Irish Home Rule, mm-hmm. um, and there were clear there were clear parallels between um, Ireland and India. Ireland being Britain's Britain's first uh, colony, right, first right. colonial possession, um, and so. It was in some ways easier to to find common cause, at least among um, Brits within the UK, than it was in India. Yeah, this is something which uh, you see in the written records of uh, most, you know, educated Indians who went across to to Great Britain in in the Victorian era. Uh, wow, you know, British people here are much more friendly and, and open uh, and progressive than they are back in in India. Uh, you know, in, in India, the relations could be quite tense. Uh, indeed, you know, there was a great degree of, uh, you know, ill will, of course, right, between between Britons and Indians, uh, you know, especially on the on the behalf of Indians who faced a lot of, you know, racialized justice in the courts and, you know, were subjected to different laws. Uh, in Great Britain, the atmosphere, of course, you know, was not perfect, far from it, of course, but but there were enough uh, people over there who, you know, expressed interest and, and curiosity about what was going on in India. Uh, and there was a small segment of people who, you know, believed very strongly uh, that India needed uh, rights uh, and freedoms, similar to what uh, people enjoyed in, in Great Britain. Uh, so, I mean, this is something that was observed by, you know, everyone from Nairobi's time through Gandhi's time uh, and later as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's easier to feel sympathetic to um, uh, to the Indian nationalists if you feel shat upon by your own government at home. Right. Um, I, I, I he had a real struggle though to to um, to obtain that that seat as an MP. So first mm. he ran for unsuccessfully for Holborn, um, and then um, later for Finsbury, and each time the uh, he ran as a liberal candidate and each time um there was there was a a lot of divided feeling in the liberal party about his candidacy and he had other rival potential liberal candidates vying with him to be the the candidate for that borough until a really late stage in the in the race it was quite cutthroat right 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 yeah yeah there there was um you know a, a, a quite wide degree of opposition towards naroji's candidacy uh, in central Finsbury. So, you know, he was, uh, he became a candidate uh, in 1888, and almost immediately you see the opposition building up. Uh, now, he chose that particular constituency, central Finsbury, uh, for a few reasons. I mean, it, it had a long history of being a, a radical district, a very progressive district. Uh, there were a lot of socialists who, who lived there, uh, a lot of Irish individuals lived there. Uh, so it already had a reputation as a constituency. Um, that was, you know, open and, uh, you know, willing to experiment uh, with its with its candidates. Nevertheless, and this, you know, shows you the limitations of whatever uh, liberal atmosphere you had in the Victorian era. Uh, there still were a lot of people who could not stomach the idea of a non-Britain, especially an Indian, uh, with a name that many people could not really pronounce, uh, standing uh, for election to the British Parliament. Uh, now, at first. Opposition came from the rival camp, from the conservatives. Um, at the end of 1888, uh, the prime minister, Lord Salisbury, a conservative, uh, gave a speech in Edinburgh where he kind of poked fun at Naroji and said, look, you know, this individual tried to stand for parliament in Holborn a few years ago. Uh, he lost. And he said specifically, you know, a black man like him, and he used those words, black man, deliberately, uh, did not deserve election to uh, to the British parliament. Uh, and that created quite a firestorm in that era. Uh, you know, as racist as things were back then, this was a step too far for, you know, your your prime minister uh, openly calling someone uh, by that particular term uh, and claiming that he therefore had no right to, to stand for parliament. Um, and so you see, you know, the Victorian equivalent of anti-racism cobbling together uh, to rise in support of Naroji um, after Salisbury's comments. And it, it becomes a, a very embarrassing moment for Salisbury 
uh, and there are lots of comics that are done and you know uh, journals like punch have a lot of fun with the whole episode uh, nevertheless what's more insidious is the opposition that came within naroji's own liberal party um, you know after the black man incident uh, you know which that episode was called there were many liberals who said far worse things about him uh, than that using all sorts of racial epithets uh, and the idea was essentially to force him out uh, he stood his ground uh, he refused to kind of give up and give in to attempts to get him to be pushed out uh, and eventually his opponents uh, you know gave up uh, and naroji uh, with literally a few weeks left to go in the campaign uh, became the sole liberal candidate you know for 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 many months and years before that he had rival candidates who were trying to unseat him uh, and within a matter of weeks if not days uh, he managed to eke out the the barest of majorities five votes and and win the election in central finsbury mm yeah i i have that um i have the excerpt from the speech here from your book um the black man incident that you're alluding to um on uh 29th of november 1888 um salisbury addressed a crowd in edinburgh's corn exchange and he alluded to um nairobi's unsuccessful bid to become the mp for hoborn um and he said colonel duncan was opposed to a black man laughter and however great the progress of mankind has been and however far we have advanced in overcoming prejudices i doubt if we have yet got to that point where british constituency will elect a black man to represent them of course you will understand that i am speaking roughly and using language in its ordinary colloquial sense because i imagine the color is not exactly black but in all events he was a man of another race who was very unlikely to represent an english community um and uh that actually garnered that surprisingly and hearteningly garnered nairobi a lot of p- positive press right. um but there was also a um you uh um you also document um um a lot of racist attacks on him including by members of his own party and um many uh racist attacks on him as a parsi also many very kind of um uh nasty things said like uh, um if we british weren't there all of the parsis would be killed um yeah many stories like that which is exactly the same line that i hear hindu nationalists taking today yeah there there are some there are some eerie parallels between their world and ours unfortunately yes we won't go into that in a lot of detail because um i have talked about this on the have interviewed people on the podcast about this a few times before he uh returning to naroji um he so his although he did manage to um draw attention to some indian issues nevertheless his stint as a parliamentarian was not uh was not terribly successful um and um or was it what do you think he achieved during the during that parliamentary time overall his time in parliament was you know for him very disappointing mm. um we we can judge it in a different manner by by our standards but you know when when he when he entered parliament uh, in 1892 uh, he did so with a great amount of hope uh, that now finally we can you know execute some change and and in india correspondingly uh, there was a wave of enthusiasm for his election uh, because now finally you had an actual indian in a position of political power at the very heart of the british empire right i mean right in the house of commons a member of uh, gladstone's uh, ruling uh party the liberals uh he had the ear of all the um you know uh, the ministers and and the important individuals in the government of of great britain uh so he set to work uh on this issue of civil service reform uh putting together a a bill for simultaneous civil service examinations and almost immediately he realized that he faced significant opposition from his own party uh there were enough people of a conservative bent of mind uh who did not want any change to happen so within his own party uh he garnered great opposition and and then he did something which was quite crafty um instead of putting a bill for civil service reform uh he decided to pass a, a resolution uh, at a time when most uh members of the house of commons were were not uh were not in session only you know a few people uh, enough people were there uh to back him 
uh, and he got it through. And he, he got it through uh, not him, you know, by not putting the resolution there himself, but by turning to a friend, uh, a representative from from Edinburgh, uh, to do that for him. Uh, and just enough votes again uh, were, were were received for this resolution, and it was a huge embarrassment uh, for Gladstone and his government thereafter, because uh, you know here essentially. Uh, a liberal had defeated the Liberal Party position, uh, which was expressed by you know whoever was on the floor that day uh, in the House of Commons. Um, over the next few years, uh, the Liberal Party uh, did its best to undo uh, any hope and possibility for change uh, that Naroji harbored uh, from that resolution. Uh, so Naroji was quite encouraged, uh, you know, encouraged by the passing of this resolution. He said, "Now Parliament had a responsibility to act on it and institute change." Uh, and essentially what happened uh, thereafter was just constant stonewalling. Uh, and by, you know, 1894-95, the last years that he was in parliament, uh, he was a deeply frust- frustrated and embittered man. Uh, you know, he he started to talk about, you know, how Indians were treated as, as slaves. Uh, he, he uh, uh, you know, he singled out people like Gladstone or Lord Rosebery and said, you know, you'd you fail the, the Indian people. Uh, you had subjected them to, to, you know, bonds of servitude. Um, you know, he even said this during the course of res- responding to the Queen's speech, not not exactly the time you'd expect for, you know, rousing condemnation of, of government policy. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, it ended in utter disappointment. I mean, he obviously he lost in 1895. And, you know, it, it seemed that his whole strategy, uh, you know, that he'd pursued for the past several decades was, you know, in tatters. Mm. So what happened next? Um I mean, now, Roji's life spanned a long period from 1825 to 1917, um, almost a century. And in the latter part of his life, after after he uh, left Parliament, um, there were a huge number of changes in gradual but growing changes in the way in which the Congress, Indian Congress Party, was uh, organizing itself and in the direction that Indian nationalism was taking. Um, can you talk a bit about his role in that in Indian nationalism in that latter part of his life? Sure, sure. So in, in my opinion, the last decade of his career from 1895, when he loses election until 1906, when you know he retires from, from politics, essentially, uh, is the most interesting part of his life. Uh, because in, in this period, and, and, and you know, remember, he is, you know, in his, you know, he's he's seventy one years old um, when he, you know, begins this period, and he's he's eighty one when he ends it. Uh, so, you know, he's at an age when most people have, you know, long since retired. Uh, he he grew increasingly more radical, more progressive. He he built up global linkages, uh, and you, he tried to put the, the the agenda of the Indian National Congress Party not not just you know at the forefront of politics and in, say India as well as Great Britain, but but really you know uh, in many different corners of the world as well. Uh, so he reached out to, uh, you know, uh, old allies that, uh, you know, he'd already built, uh, you know, strong relationships with people like the Irish uh, women who were involved in the, in the suffrage movement. But he also uh, created new alliances with people like progressives in, in America. Uh, you know, just this is, you know, the period right after the Spanish-American War where America embarked on its, its own formal empire. Uh, and so Nairoji reached out to a lot of individuals who were opposed uh, to, say, American colonization of the Philippines or, uh, you know, its, its expeditions in places like Cuba or annexation of Puerto Rico. Uh, and so there was a lot of common ground that was uh, established between American anti-imperialists and uh, members of the International Congress. And this was mediated through Nairoji. Uh, and, you know, what you see happen is, you know, from this point onward, uh, Indian nationalism takes on a, a really strong international bet. I mean, you know, in subsequent generations, uh, America played a, an important role uh, in, you know, the movement for Indian independence. Uh, Naroji was really the first individual to kind of uh, lay that foundation. Uh, Naroji also starts talking to people throughout the Indian diaspora. Uh, so people like Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who was, you know, a young barrister in in, in Durban and South Africa, and someone just starting to campaign for the rights of Indians. Uh, and so Naroji works with Gandhi. Gandhi kind of reaches out to Naroji while he's in parliament and says, could you please advise me? I'm, you know, I'm a young individual who needs, you know, encouragement in what I'm doing. Uh, and Naroji, you know, is one of several people uh, who offer Gandhi critical support at the stage, uh, which helps him go on to become not just an important South African leader, of course, but a, an Indian one as well. Uh, you know, when, when Gandhi returned to India 
uh, from his time in South Africa in, in the year 1915. Uh, Naroji was one of the first people that uh, he met. Naroji was, I think, what, 90 at that point in time. Uh, but Gandhi made a point to go see him uh, before most other political leaders uh, when you know he returned. Uh, so you again see this this very broad kind of inter- internal internalization of, of of Indian political affairs. Uh, Indians start to make common cause with people like um, Africans, uh, you know, who are living in London, uh, West Indians, uh, even African Americans. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, there was a lot of discussion about parallels between what African Americans faced in the South and what Indians faced in. Uh, in British India, in terms of the the racial oppression and the uh, uh, you know the injustice they faced, um, uh, the poverty that they were subjected to, uh, so this influences the Congress to take a much more kind of holistic path in terms of uh, thinking about political liberation. Um, and you see, subsequently, you know, the Indian National Congress in its later years, it wasn't just campaigning for Indian independence. I mean, that of course was the central goal. Uh, but it was campaigning for something much more. I mean, you know, global anti-colonialism. Uh, you know, the, the moment India gets independence in 1947, it's, it, it talks about, you know, the need for independence for countries like Indonesia or Vietnam. Uh, and we can see early roots of this international perspective uh, in Naroji's uh, last decade of his uh, political career, where he's establishing a lot of these global links. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um can uh, can you tell, talk a little bit about how Nairoji is received by um, generally in India by historians and, and scholars? What is the usual attitude towards him? Is he is he a, a uh, figure who's often studied and talked about? Um, and if so, how? And if not, why not? Do you think? Hmm. So this is what actually attracted me to uh, do my dissertation and, and then eventually this book uh, on Nairoji. Uh, general neglect uh, is, is how I would characterize, um, you know, scholarship on Naroji, as, as well as, you know, his entire generation of, of early nationalists. Um, you know, there were scholars in the 70s who, who looked at these figures. Uh, they kind of judged a lot of early nationalists as being remote, self-interested individuals who kind of debated amongst themselves in the English language and therefore had very little actual uh, pull or tug on, on Indian society at large. Um, and, you know, now I think there's, there's an understanding that this, this perspective is, is not entirely correct. I mean, that, that early Indian nationalism was actually relatively dynamic. It, it could be relatively mass-based in certain aspects as well. Uh, and that the work of people like Naroji or, or other figures in this era, people like uh, Ranade or, or Gokhale or, um, you know, obviously more radical figures like Tilak, uh, were instrumental uh, in, uh, you know, putting together uh, the movement which people like Gandhi and Nehru eventually capitalized on. Uh, so, you know, prior to, you know, my investigation of Naroji, I mean, uh, most scholarship acknowledged that he was an important leader, that he had something to say about, uh, you know, this, the strain of wealth and economic nationalism, but that was about it. Uh, you know, and, and there was some, you know, a few throwaway references to his time in parliament, not too much. Um, and one of the reasons why Naroji uh, had not really been studied that well is because no one had really looked at his personal papers. Um, uh, you know, his papers are in Delhi. They're very, very difficult to use. Uh, they're, they're huge. They're voluminous in size. Uh, so, you know, once you engage with the papers, uh, you develop a much more complex and nuanced story, uh, not just of how Naroji was as a character, but how Indian nationalism itself developed. Um, so, you know, what I hope to have accomplished with this book was show that you know, uh, early Indian nationalism, sure, it was not as mass-based or popular as, say, uh, what it was like when Gandhi was around. But at the same time, it was not an, just an elite movement of urbanized English-speaking individuals. Uh, there was a lot of movement on the ground uh, that people like Naroji and others participated in, uh, you know, kind of gathering inputs and opinions from people in villages, uh, rural Indians, uh, taking into account the interests of uh, agriculturalists, uh, and making the Congress a relatively broad-based uh, movement. Uh, you know, during one of its very first sessions, the Congress boasted, um, you know, an electorate of around 5 million people. Uh, and by electorate, I mean, you know, the number of people who voted on uh, who should be a delegate at these sessions of the International Congress that took place every year. Uh, and the founder of the International Congress, Alan Octavian Hume, himself a Scotsman, uh, you know, very rightly pointed out that this five million figure was actually larger than the, uh, the you know, the, the, the number of people who voted 
uh, in uh, uh, British elections every year at the time. Uh, mm. So, you know, automatically you had more people voting in elections. I mean, even though these were non-official elections, uh, than you had in, you know, what was considered one of the world's great democracies at the time. Yes. Well, when, when Nairobi was putting together his drain theory, um, you describe the kind of attention to detail that he gave. Um, and he wanted to know, for example, uh, why a particular number of, um, of baskets of millet had been reported in one district versus right. more in another. Um, so he was really very, he was I, he was very interested in, he was interested in Indian poverty. So he wanted to know, uh, he, he was interest, interested in, in very much in the fate of, fates of ordinary Indians. Um, right. and in the absolute nuts and bolts kind of figures of how much are you buying and selling your agricultural goods for? How much money do you have to be able to buy food for your family on a daily basis, et cetera? Um, the basics of, of survival and how British rule was impacting that was creating um, greater poverty and hardship among millions. So it really wasn't um, it. It really wasn't an elitist concern. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. I you know. I. I think a lot of the earlier scholarly characterization again of, of Indian nationalism being you know a bunch of educated people who just wanted to give themselves jobs. That is you know. That is fundamentally incorrect. I mean that 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 does a huge disservice to, um, you know, the intellectual depth of uh, the work that these individuals did in their in their time. And do you think that there was, um, in what ways do you think that that his Parsi background um, affected his life, or um, or perhaps his his approach, or? Um, what what difference do you do you think that made that he was a Parsi? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it it it, it did benefit him in the sense that you know Parsis by the mid eighteen uh, hundreds in Bombay had already developed into a, a very wealthy community, a community that increasingly spoke uh, English as well as you know Gujarati and 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 such. Um, that was increasingly progressive, though. I mean, that narrative of progressiveness within the Parsi community is much more nuanced and. There was also a huge block of orthodox uh, opposition to that progressiveness. So now Roji benefited from these, you know, you know, the progressive side of, of, of things in, in, uh, as they moved in the Parsi community. Uh, and one thing which I think, you know, was of great help also to me uh, is the fact that he had a very, he did the very Parsi thing of keeping everything that, that was ever given to him. Uh, he was a pack rat, if you will, which which many Pisces are. Oh God! Uh, and, 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 <laughs> yeah, and, and and consequently, I mean, you know, that's 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 one of the reasons why his archival collection is so rich because, you know, he he just kept everything. Now, unfortunately, a lot of it has been lost subsequently, but you know, what remains is is you know really kind of a, a deep dive into what life was like uh, in his time. Uh, so so you know that was an aspect, I guess, of being a Parsi that's at least helpful to. Uh, you know, a current day scholar, myself, as well as others who, who've looked at him. Um, you know, one thing that helped him in Great Britain, and, you know, this is unfortunate, is that, you know, as a Parsi, he was more light-skinned, uh, and therefore he could easily pass off, more easily pass off as, as a Briton. Um, there were other Indians who uh, stood for parliament, uh, a, a number of Bengalis, and they had a markedly more difficult time. Uh, and, you know, when you read about why, uh, well, you know, a lot of times their, you know, their appearance, uh, the fact that they were darker skinned and visibly more foreign uh, created all the more obstacles uh, in their campaigning. I mean, you know, they, they overcame them with amazing aplomb and, and such, but still, it, you know, placed them in a far more difficult position than someone like Nauroji. Um After the Black Man incident, one of the lines of retort against Salisbury was that, no, look at Nauroji is actually relatively fair skinned. How can you call him black? Which you know might have been a good argument in the Victorian era, but by our, <laughs> our contemporary standards, is you know quite disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So there were factors that helped him, uh, you know, by his his very ethnicity. But as you pointed out earlier, the fact that he was a Parsi was also a source of um, you know opposition to his uh, claims to being called uh, you know a representative for India by by Britons. Many Britons said you know you know a Parsi is as representative as say like. A Nestorian Christian would be in in the in the Turkish Empire, or 
you know, an Armenian or, or something like that. I mean, you, he's not Hindu, he's not Muslim. What business does he have talking about the rights of Indians? Yes, uh, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I uh, One thing, to- talking about Indians in the UK, um, perhaps one last area I'd like to touch on a little bit because this was one of the things that fascinated me in the book. There were several areas of the book which were um, really gave really fascinating little insights. And I would actually have liked you to, or I would have welcomed you going into greater depth. Um, sure. One was the sheer difficulties in researching because of the poor condition of materials and the way that materials are handled in India. I would actually love to read more about that. Um, sure. But the other thing was um, you gave a very vivid portrayal of what it was like for Indians who were living in the UK during the Victorian era. Um, can you say a little bit uh, for listeners about the kinds of Indians who were living in the UK in that in the late 19th century, uh, for whom Nauroji became, for many of whom Nauroji became a, a really a personal mentor? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll speak for a little bit on, on archives. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the book, I mean, one very difficult uh, handicap towards putting together the life story of someone like Nauroji or indeed many other Indian individuals is that archives in India are in quite bad conditions. Um, you know, the papers have not been properly preserved. Huge amounts of collections have been destroyed or lost over the years. Um, and, you know, working in these archives also can be a very difficult thing. I mean, there's still, at least until a few years ago, there were, there were a few archives which would not allow you to bring a laptop in um, for some odd reason. Um, you know, photographing is almost entirely prohibited in, in most places. Um, and the quality of the material you're looking at is it's, it's in a very degraded state. I mean, there's, there's um, you know, all sorts of stuff growing on it, unfortunately. Um, it's not been, the paper has not been properly deacidified or treated, so it, you know, just falls apart at the barest touch. It's not properly organized. Uh, oftentimes it's misorganized. Um, you know, I mean, there, there just has not been professional treatment of, of our archival collections here in India. And that's why it's so difficult to work in these facilities. Uh, and it's not got any better in the past few years. Um, you know, to give you a very kind of, um, a vivid example of the challenges one faces working here. Uh, the National Archives in India are, you know, which of course are shut right now because of the pandemic, are scheduled to be demolished um, as part of, you know, a scheme by the government to redesign New Delhi. Now, we don't know anything really specifically of what's going to happen. Will those papers be properly transferred to a new facility? What precisely would be made available while the facility is being demolished and rebuilt? Where will it be re- rebuilt? I mean, there's complete opacity on this whole process. Uh, and consequently, that makes, you know, the lives of us as scholars even more difficult because, you know, our, our bread and butter, you know, working, you know, in these archival facilities, uh, you know, will be taken away from us for years um, due to a rather, you know, you know, wrong-headed uh, you know, urban renewal project in Delhi. Uh, so it's 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 a very frustrating time to be a, to be you know uh, you know working in an archival facility in India. It's you know, and now that I'm here in India, I would like to help bring about some change in that, but it'll be a long and, and very difficult <laughs> process. Um, now, as as to the topic of you know what Indian life was like in Victorian Britain, so um, you know roughly there were two different types of Indians who, who lived in 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 Britain in. Uh, the late 19th century. Uh, there were the educated, uh, you know, Indians who came over to Britain to study, uh, you know, in, 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 for college or, or to intern in, in factories or, or workplaces or conduct business uh, or study for the Indian civil service examination. Uh, and this group included people like visiting princes, you know, princes who come to Great Britain and show off their wealth and uh, what have you and, you know, go on the, the social circuit and West End and, and such. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there were people like uh, Lashkars uh, or, or Ayas. So, you know, you know for, for those of you who are more interested in the longer history of, of, uh, of uh, you know, Asians in Britain, uh, there's a book by that very title by Rosina Vistram, which I really strongly recommend reading. It's, it's a great look into, uh, you know, how the community developed. Uh, and these people, you know, the Lashkars, these were, were, were seafaring uh, individuals who, you know, ply the ships that went all around the world and, 
Uh, a lot of them would live in places like Limehouse or, uh, you know, what are today the, you know, the Docklands. Uh, and their world was completely different, right? I mean, you know, they lived in terrible conditions, uh, very rarely spoke English. Um, they would live in a, in, a, in a very cosmopolitan world where, you know, they were Chinese and Africans and Malays and such. Uh, but, you know, there was a great degree of racism built into society in the East End as well. Um, and they were regularly deported or, you know, arrested or, or put in asylums. Uh, now, most of the people Naroji associated with were, of course, in, in the former group, right? I mean, you know, the, the educated elite. Uh, but he did have a few ties uh, with these individuals, the Lashkars and, um, you know, manual laborers and people who came over to Great Britain, uh, you know, for, 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 you know, non-professional things, you know, for vocational activities. Uh, but by and large, the people that he was talking, that, that he talked to were the students or, you know, the professionals who came to London. Um, and, you know, the correspondence between these individuals is quite revealing. I mean, it, it shows you know, the degree to which Indians, you know, went to such great lengths in order to get educational opportunities uh, at places like Cambridge or Oxford or, or Edinburgh uh, to study to be a doctor or a civil servant or, or, or you know, a lawyer at, at the inns of court, but also the profound racism that they faced. Uh, you know, there was in particular correspondence that Naroji had with an individual who I think was living in, uh, in Lincoln. And this individual mentioned that, you know, he was studying to be a doctor in Lincoln, that uh, you know, there was terrible racism that he faced, even though, you know, he spoke English, you know, he was educated. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know, in a, in a, in a relatively provincial city, uh, it was difficult for him to, you know, separate entirely from, uh, you know, a more racist, uh, you know, current that was flowing around him. And, and even in a cosmopolitan place like London, um, you were never far away from, you know, uh, racism, uh, you know, and, and it, it kind of came in, in spurts and, you know, in bits and, you know, and, and, and spurts, if you will, uh, you know, you, you would face, you know, perfectly normal treatment one day and then the next day maybe something would happen and you'd be reminded of who you were. Uh, so it was, it was a difficult place for, for people to, to live in. And consequently, you know, there was, you know, as you can tell from the correspondence, a great degree of depression uh, and despondency uh, in the Indian community. Uh, you know, a lot of people wrote to Naroji uh, seeking his support financially, morally, uh, emotionally, uh, because they were so disconnected and so adrift in British society. Uh, and Naroji really evolved into kind of like a father-like figure uh, for many of these individuals. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm aware that you, uh, we need to end soon so that you can uh, prepare your dinner um, <laughs> sure. there in Bombay. Um, and uh, is there anything that you uh, wish you'd had a chance to say that you you haven't had a chance to say, or something that I haven't asked you, or that you feel needs to be emphasized. Well, you know, I I think you know, I mean, we addressed this to a a, a little bit of a degree at the beginning of of of, of this podcast, but you know, I I think that there is a definite um, importance for someone like Naroji at this current political moment, not just here in India or Britain, but really around the world. I mean, Naroji's story is is about a you know, essentially, a, you know, a colonized figure, a, a, a marginalized, a more marginalized figure, uh, you know, kind of speaking truth to power, uh, and also helping turn around, um, you know, a very conservative moment in, in, uh, in politics. Uh, and, you know, you, it's, it's very easy to, to note the parallels between uh, what someone like Naroji faced in his time and what we're going through right now in terms of, you know, both populism and, uh, you know, right-wing extremism in, in various countries, majoritarianism, uh, crackdowns on freedom of speech in different countries, including India. Um, so, you know, in many ways, he's, you know, he can be an inspiring example of someone who, you know, faced tremendous odds and a tremendous backlash uh, and nevertheless persisted um, and helped really turn the tide of, of political uh, debate and discussion uh, to a, 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 you know, a much more progressive chapter in, in, in history. Wonderful. Um, well, I highly, highly recommend the biography. Um, Thank I you. really, I really enjoy reading biography anyway, but, uh, this has been one of my favorites that I've read in recent years. Oh, um, thank you. I appreciate that. I will, I will put the links to that in the show notes. And I hope when I'm finally back in Bombay, which I don't know when that will be because I'm just waiting <laughs> yeah, for. Stage, yeah, no yeah. one knows. Yeah, <laughs> waiting for the pandemic to end and um, India to come off the red list, where I don't have to 
pay £2,000 to re-enter the UK afterwards <laughs> and be quarantined for weeks. Um, so hoping, hoping we all get through that, especially you guys. And um, I hope that we might get to meet someday in Bombay. And meanwhile, thank you so Great. much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And I look forward to eventually meeting. Thank you, Iona, for having me on this podcast. You're welcome. Have a wonderful week, everyone. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea PC, Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.